All right, well, good morning. Um, I've probably said this before, but I love that song. Um, sometimes I wonder if we think about what we sing. Till the whole earth sees, right? The Redeemer has come, for He dwells in the presence of His people. That's part of the way that the world is going to recognize it, right? That Christ is not only Lord and King, but that He actually is present with His people. So what a reminder and encouragement for us to uh, express that daily in our lives and to live consistently with the power of the gospel. Um, you know, we may sometimes be discouraged, experience brief bouts of discouragement because when we present the gospel and it is rejected, we think, why won't, why won't they see, right? That's, what, that's the question that comes up. Why will they not recognize? Why will they not understand? And yet, we sing the promise that one day that will be the case and we take heart in the fact that the Lord will also be faithful to use us to demonstrate the truth of that matter. So, uh, praise the Lord for that. Once again, happy Reformation Sunday. Um, we can spend together uh, thinking about these great truths that the Lord in His faithfulness has sought fit to preserve and to preserve them through the teaching of His Holy Scripture. So, let's pray and then we'll get into it this morning bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your love and goodness to us. We ask that you would give us wisdom and clarity and understanding as we go forth to the text this morning and to see what you say to us. We are your people and you dwell with us. And I pray, Lord, that you would teach us to be dependent upon your word, to walk in the power of grace by faith as we are able to experience uh, every good thing that you give to us, your children, your people, uh, your bride. Uh, bless us, and may we be a blessing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, go ahead and open your Bibles if you haven't already. We will continue our study this morning in the book of Second Peter. Second Peter chapter 1, and our text for this morning... We'll begin in verse 8, and we'll continue to verse 11. So please follow along as I read 2 Peter 1, 8-11. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you, for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. <clears throat> so the topic of our discussion is the manner in which Christ imparts, and I would say abundantly imparts, grace to his people. We've titled this study, The Grace of Christ for the Virtuous. And we got through the first couple of points last Lord's Day. Of course, the intention was to make it all the way through uh, verse 11. We didn't get there, but we should round out our study uh, today and really see how all of these uh, points uh, join in a very great singular point, and that is how Christ gives us His grace 
in order to grow, to live out the Christian life faithfully, and to love Him in it all the way, recognizing that He is faithful. Now, in terms of this title, I was thinking about it more this week, the grace of Christ for the virtuous. We sort of talked about how it's not that Christ gives us grace because we are virtuous, right? It's not we're trying to be virtuous so that we earn grace. Is that Christ, in His mercy and in His righteousness, has caused us to be a virtuous people. That is, a people who love righteousness, who love the Gospel, who love the Lord, and who want to grow in Christ's likeness. So don't let that escape your notice. The grace of Christ for the virtuous. That is to say, even the virtuous, even the righteous, even the holy people of God need grace. Those who are virtuous continue to grow in grace. The virtuous are continue to be continue to be sustained by grace. The virtuous hope in grace. And what a day Reformation Sunday to consider the wonders of grace of our Lord Jesus for those who are virtuous in him. Remember God will do nothing less than perfect his people. He will not fail in his mission toward us. And the primary way that that is accomplished is by giving us grace. Is by lavishing upon His people an unmerited, undeserved, and even irrevocable love and favor that will inevitably transform all of His elect, all of His people into the perfect image of His Son. So even now, as we struggle in the Christian life, we are encouraged because we realize that it is God who makes all of this possible. It is not in our own strength. It is in His strength alone. And so just to review uh, the, the first two points, there were five overall, and we will get uh, through three through five today, but to rehash the initial two, here's the things that grace does for the believer. First of all, grace empowers me to serve Christ. So in verse 8, we read this, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are all servants of the Lord Jesus, and not one of us, if we're honest, wants to be useless. Not one of us wants to be fruitless. We want to be fruitful. We want to be productive for the Lord. We want to be able to present the fruit of whatever ministry we are in whatever work of service we are engaged in for His ultimate glory and honor. So neither none of us wants to be a useless Christian constantly sitting on the bench of life wondering what our calling is. The Lord is faithful in His calling. We listen to His voice. And we live to serve, love, and obey Him. So that is the heart cry, I believe, of every believer is to serve our Lord well and to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. But of course, we need power for this, right? We don't rely on our own strength, but we find all strength that is necessary in grace, in the God who gives it. Remember, these qualities, that goes back to that ladder of virtues, right? In your faith, verse 5, he says, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, of course, the heart of all of this is love. True Christian love that is rooted in God. 
We want to be Christians who love one another. And if we are Christians who love God and love one another, we will be fruitful, we will be useful, and we will find that these qualities as the Holy Spirit strengthens us are ours, they're our possession, and they will be increasing. As we said last week, we never want fruit-bearing to grow stagnant. We are not in, we, we are not in dry soil as we are constantly being watered by the Word. We have the light of revelation shining on us. We will be fruitful. We will find increase in these spiritual virtues and our growth in Christ. So that's the first one. Grace empowers me to serve Christ. Secondly, grace exhorts me to remember Christ. So of course, there is, there is correction. There is encouragement in these verses. Look at your text again. He says, For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. So we are called to remember, not to be forgetful Christians, not to be hearers of the Word merely who hear it and then turn around and forget what we saw, forget what we heard, forget what we look like, right? We don't want to be useless in that regard. But we are to be doers of the Word as well. And so Peter here kind of echoes James's instructions. If you lack these qualities, that is inconsistent with your life in Christ. You are acting like an unbeliever. You're blind or short-sighted. You have forgotten. And of course, there's no excuse for forgetting. And yet, here we have a reason why. This is what happens when you fail to grow. This is what happens when you sin. You forget your purification from your former sins. So we have to call to mind that in Christ through the preaching of the Gospel, we've been purified. And we continue to be refined. We've been born again. right? We are cleansed by the washing of water through the Word. So that is the key to growth, is to call to mind, to remember the grace that is ours. To focus on that and to remember that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. It is tragic for the Christian to forget on any level his purification, to forget and to fail to call to mind what God in Christ has done for you. We never want to forget that. So here Peter tells us, do not fail in remembering that. Call it to mind deliberately. Call it to mind regularly and consistently. Call it to mind joyfully and feast on the truth of what God has done for you through the Gospel. He has brought you to Himself. He has declared you righteous. He has made you a new creation and continues to conform you to the image of His beloved Son. So those are the first two things. So here is number three. We'll look at the text again. Grace establishes, establishes meaning confirm or solidify, my calling in Christ. So grace empowers me to serve Christ. Grace exhorts me to remember Christ. And grace establishes my calling in Christ. Everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ believes in Him because at one point or another, He was called. Not called in a general sense, but called in a specific, effectual sense. When we were called to Him, we were called irresistibly. That is what grace does. And so in light of all that has gone before, in light of all that Peter has told these Christians, he says, therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to make certain about His calling and choice of you. So he refers to them as brothers and sisters. So we understand that Peter is, 
talking primarily to Christians, not the unbeliever. We can say not even to those who are very wishy-washy in their faith. No, he's saying, hey, you as Christians, knowing that you are adding virtue upon virtue upon the foundation of your faith, that you are growing in all of these things, that you are fruitful and useful to the Master, knowing all that, he says this, be all the more diligent to make certain about His calling and choice of you. So here we have a couple of things. Calling and choice. So the effectual call, doctrinally speaking, we have here the effectual call of God upon a sinner. And then we have the doctrine of of election. So two very offensive doctrines which we can come today to the Word of God and really rejoice in because we see all the benefit that God has given us in these two teachings. The fact is, when it comes to God's calling and election, we are witnessing two of the most comforting doctrines in all of Scripture. See, if, we, if God calls us and we come to Him, and we will if He calls us, He will not cast us out. Right. He receives us. He receives us willingly. And He changes us and transforms us. Same thing with election. If He has chosen us, He will never unchoose us. We'll get into some texts that kind of spell this out. But the fact is, is that these teachings are precious. And if they are precious, why should then the people of God fail to spend time enjoying them, thinking about them? These are the very things that encourage us to persevere, to know that the calling and electing purposes of God will not and cannot ultimately fail. But that is not to make us careless. That's not to make us complacent in our faith. Rather, that, is to, that serves to fire us up, right? To get us excited about our life in Christ. It gives us confidence. There is a steadfastness that it instills within the life of the church so that we persevere. But, to perse- but, but persevere in power. Think about this. What does God's calling and election do? Well, I mean, first of all, I think it displays God's glory. It's, you know, the big picture here displays God's glory in His salvation as we see it at work in us. It gives God the glory, right? Knowing that He has done everything, that it didn't come down to human choice or human will or human merit, but to the God who saves. And so He gets all the credit for calling us and electing us. And here's another thing that follows closely on the heels of that. Election honors God's sovereignty, right? When we talk about election and calling, and we understand it biblically, what we are saying, now prepare for a mind-blowing statement, what we are saying is that God, being God, has the right to run His universe the way that He sees fit, right? And in part of running His universe is exercising absolute sovereign control over who He saves. You think of, Paul reasoning to the Romans, right? Will the clay say to the potter, why did you make me this way, right? Who resists His will? Exactly. No one can resist the will of God. No one can resist His perfect, holy, and sovereign will. And so in the exercising of that, He he chooses whom He will save and demonstrates that He has all authority and control over His creation and especially over his people, and who he makes his own. And so that's why, thirdly, we come to this conclusion is that election comforts God's people. 
That should be an immense comfort to us. See, if God's decided, He has the final word, right? God says it, that settles it. The question is, do we believe that? Do we believe what God has said regarding His own sovereign choice of His people? And if we do, that gives us great encouragement because if we belong to God, we belong to God eternally. We belong to God in an irreversible way. That once He has called us to Himself, we find that His electing purposes are sure. Remember, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. They cannot be returned, and why would we? Why would we even want to entertain something like that? So precious is God's calling and election to us. It's one of those teachings that many really struggle with today. because I think above all, because it leaves out human choice. But we trust in God's choosing, do we not? It is His choosing that matters. Consider what Charles Spurgeon has to say on this. Some men cannot endure the doctrine of election. I suppose they like to choose their own wives, but they are not willing that Christ should choose His own bride, the church. I think uh, Spurgeon is spot on, right? We, we take certain prerogatives, right? Do I, do we, we reason, do we not have the right to love whom we choose? Right? Why would we deny God that? Why would, why would we deny Christ that very same thing? After all, He is King of kings and Lord of lords. How much more should we honor His will and sovereign electing purposes? But just some of the passages that teach, that teach this, just to keep it fresh in our hearts, in Ephesians 1, 3-6, we read this. This is sort of seen as the keystone passage on really corporate election. God choosing not only individuals, but a church, a bride. So in Ephesians 1, 3-6, we read this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. So you see there, there's a beginning and there's an end. In God's electing purposes, there is a definitive certain end that we would be holy and blameless. So, keep reading. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will. So you see that? In love, He predestined us. What does predestined mean? It's amazing that there's debate over this at all. In love, He predestined. Predestined simply means predetermined, decided beforehand. Who did? God. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself Listen to this. According to the kind intention of His will. right? He wanted to show kindness. He wanted to show kindness to people, and so He did. And then in verse 6, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. So that goes back to election displaying God's glory. He did all of this to the praise of the glory of His grace. That's a mouthful. But, it, but, but every word there is important. We want to see election as a basis to glorify God and to see His grace firmly established in our hearts, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. I mean, what a statement. What a blessing that is to the church to freely receive that gift. Here's another great one. Romans 8, 28-30. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. So we have that initial statement. 
God causes all things to work together for good. That's awesome. But to, but to a certain people, to those who love God. Who are those who love God? Those whom God has chosen to bring to Himself. Those whom God has transformed through the Gospel. Right? For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestined, He also called. And these whom He called, He also justified. And these whom He justified, He also glorified. So he goes straight from justification to glorification. It's almost as if Paul was convinced that sanctification is that certain. <laughs> but Paul names off these things as if they've already happened. He also glorified, right? He has done all these things. They're as good as done, right? So grace, in that sense, establishes my calling, right? Be all the more diligent, right? This, look at this word diligent in verse 10. It's a very important word. He used it also in verse 5. Same Greek word. Applying all what? Diligence. Right? We talked about the, the person who would basically fund these Greek choruses or plays, right? these performances. But it emphasized a, com, a deep commitment on the part of that man who would do so. And so the same idea is in, is in place here. We are to be diligent in making certain about His calling and election of us. Paul words it this way in his letter to the Corinthians. He says this, Test yourself, 2 Corinthians 13, 5-6, Test yourself or examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Right? Examine yourselves carefully. Right? Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test. But Paul says this in verse 6, but I trust that you will realize that we ourselves do not fail the test. So I want us to recognize something very important here. We do not examine ourselves. We do not show diligence to make certain about, our, about God's calling and election of us to sow doubt. That's not what is meant to happen. Remember, Peter is addressing primarily Christians here. So it's not meant to sow doubt. It's meant to encourage us. It's meant to show us that God is at work to remind us to, to, to persevere in the faith. Right? To keep our eyes fixed on Him. Right? To, you know, it's meant to erase doubt. It's meant to burn unbelief away. Think of it as a blacksmith at work on, a, on, on perhaps a, a sword. right? A sword that is ready for battle. He has to do something called a heat treatment. right? And of course, one of the goals to that is not meant to simply burn away impurities, <clears throat> but to actually strengthen the metal, right? The metal has to be at a certain hardness because you don't want it to shatter upon impact. You also want the metal to be a certain flexibility so that it can bend and not break. This is what it's like to be diligent in making sure of our calling and election. You give it careful attention. See, later on in the book, of 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 17, he gives this warning. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall away from your own steadfastness. So it's a warning to, to give us attention to the task at hand, right? He doesn't want us to be carried away by error, right? He doesn't want us to fall into unbelief. He doesn't want us to apostatize, right? And even though we understand that our salvation is secure in Christ, 
we are still warned against falling away. And so part of that diligence is being on guard. And we talked about that a lot in the book of 1 Peter, right? Being, being vigilant, being sober-minded for the purpose of prayer, especially so that we do not fall captive to the enemy's temptation. So here's a couple things we can go over. Again, how do we know? How, what, are, what are the various tests? We have a little bit more time today to kind of go over some of these things. And we are, uh, I'm indebted to a couple of Johns. First is the Apostle John, and then of course a uh, little article I read by John Piper who, who uh, lists a bunch of passages regarding the tests of whether or not we are in Christ. And so here's, here's a few things we can, we can go over. And I think the first test is, is initially this. This provides the bedrock of the test. So we don't want to forget this because we don't want to make, we don't want to make an examination of faith all about us, right? All about the doing. Okay. We have to keep first things first. So the first of this is this. It's simply the test of Christ. The test of Christ himself. Did Christ do what he did? Is Christ who he said he is? The fact, here's the question, right? Is Christ Lord? Answer, yes. Is Christ Savior and Messiah? Answer, yes. Did Christ die a fully efficacious, wrath-satisfying death on the cross in the place of sinners? Answer, yes. Did Christ rise again on the third day? Yes. Is Jesus currently ascended at the right hand of power? interceding on our behalf. Yes! See, that's the concrete and objective reality that the rest of this is founded upon. First, Christ must be true. See, there's the good news for you. So once that test, you see, Christ will never fail to pass the test. So we must point ourselves toward Him before we even begin the next points. So, knowing that, this, knowing that Christ is true, we then go on. The test of faith. Do you believe in this Christ alone? Yes, I would hope. So in 1 John 2, 23 and 25, we read this, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you will also abide in the Son and in the Father. So, not just a belief, a trust in Christ, but an ongoing belief. Remember, a true faith is one that abides in Christ till the end. So that's the test of faith. So you can ask yourself, right? Am I, do I believe in what Christ has done and am I trusting in Him personally and no other for my salvation? Those are the questions. So that's the test of faith. And then we have, of course, the test of love. Do you love this Christ in whom you claim to believe? Right. I mean, that's, that's, off, that's the first fruit right, of true faith. We come to love Christ. Right? We delight in Him. We love to be in His presence. So here we have faith and love linked. Write this one down. 1 John 5.1 Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. So you see the connection between faith, believing that Jesus is the Christ, and then of course, loving Him. Whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. Here's another one, 1 John 2.10. 
It's not just love for God and Jesus, it's love for your brother, and those two are connected as well. If you hate your brother, you cannot say that you love God, because if you truly love God, you will love your brother. So 1 John 2.10, the one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. So that's the test of love. Fourthly, flowing out of this is the test of obedience, right? Christ is true, so we trust in Him. If we trust in Him, we will love Him. And if we love Him, we will obey Him. We will do what He says. We will obey His commandments. That's why the Lord Jesus tells His disciples in John 14, 15, if you love Me, you will keep My commandments. You will obey Me. Why do you call Me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Right? In 1 John, I believe it's chapter 2, verse 3, by this we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. So there's knowledge and obedience, right? John 10, 26, My sheep hear My voice. I know them. And they what? They follow Me. They don't just stand there or lie down. They follow the voice of the Good Shepherd. So we have encouragement after encouragement there. Clear instructions. Here's 1 John 4, 6. This is a good one. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. That is the apostolic preaching of the cross. He says, by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And really quickly, going back to love, when it comes to love, uh, write this one down, Jude, verse 21. Keep yourselves in the love of God, right? Waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. So that keeping yourselves in the love of God is a way in which faith, the perseverance of faith is expressed. So we have love and faith linked once again. So very clear from these texts. Now, consider... Consider Hebrews 6, 11 through 12, and we desire that each one of you show the same diligence, right? Talking to, talking to Jewish believers who are under pressure to return to the old Judaizing Judaism. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So he says, have full assurance, persevere in these things, be diligent, so show care. And you have lots of examples of those who went before you, of what this looks like. Faith and patience, and they inherited the promises. In 2 Timothy 2.19, we read this, Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands having this seal. Now note this, this brings us back to the Lord Himself. The Lord knows those who are His, and, okay, there's the starting point. And then Paul brings it full circle. And everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness, right? Keep yourself free from sin. So that is grace being established, right? Grace establishing my calling in Christ. Remember, this is not to discourage you. This is not to make you doubt whether or not the Lord has saved you. It is to give you confidence. It is to really it's to it's to call to mind. Remember, remember, right? That is to be a time of refreshment. Right? Not a not a time to not a time to engage in unbelief. 
we want to, you know, how, how powerful it is for the Christian to make it a regular habit of knowing that he belongs to Christ, right? To examine ourselves, to know that we are in the faith, to see our progress worked out in fear and trembling, but by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. So that's the third thing grace does. Fourthly, fourthly, grace emboldens my walk with Christ. So we look at the text again. He says, for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble, right? Practice what things, right? I would say growing in grace, that ladder of virtues, you know, not, not being unfruitful, and I would also connect that with the diligence of making certain of his calling and choosing. I think doing all of these things, all of these things put together, he says as long as you do that, you know, you practice, do, make, make it a habit of this. It's an ongoing reality. As long as you do these things, you will never stumble. What, a, what an encouragement. As long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. And that's what we call assurance in real time. Right? I don't think assurance is something that is meant to be so mysterious, right? Or so, or so hard to identify. Because if God is at work in us, it prevails upon the Christian to have eyes to see and to acknowledge the work of God in his life, right? We don't want to stumble. You know, we've talked about what it means to stumble, not merely being offended, but in most contexts, stumble is mentioned to portray someone who is stumbling into apostasy, a shipwrecking of the faith, a devastation, really a, a moment that exposes that your faith was not a true faith. And so the statement is meant to give us confidence in that. We practice these things, we walk with God, Independence upon Him, the humble heart, we, will, we never have to worry about stumbling. Right? He says, you will, you will never stumble. Okay. But we want to beware of stumbling blocks. We are warned about this issue, among, even among those who claim to belong to God. Listen to Matthew 13 from the kingdom parables. Matthew 13, verses 41-43. through 43. The Son of Man will send forth His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all stumbling blocks, and those who commit lawlessness, right? Stumbling block. Though, I mean, these are, these are people who not only have a faith that will end up shipwrecked, but even those who call sh- cause shipwreck among other so-called believers. And they are those who commit lawlessness. And it says this, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, right? So to stumble, keep this in mind, to stumble is not merely to trip. To stumble is to... Is to Stumble in such a devastating apostate fashion that your eternal destiny is one of separation from God and eternal fire. It is one of judgment. But then note this, verse 43, then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. So to the degree of dev- that, that, the, that the stumbling blocks experience spiritual judgment and devastation is the same degree to which the righteous are displayed in reflecting the glory of God. We will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Right? Shine forth as the sun. Imagine that imagery, right? I mean, you ever look at the sun for a prolonged amount of time? Usually not. You can't look at it, right? It's blinding. That's how bright the church will be, as it were. 
Matthew 18, 7, Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks, for it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. Right? So I bring these up to, to emphasize the, dev- the devastating nature of stumbling, and yet also to say that we should not fear this as we practice these things. This doesn't have to be some, some fear right, that constantly creeps up on us and takes our eyes off Christ. We don't want to worry about things that the Lord Himself tells us not to worry about. And so He says, as long as you practice these things, you will, you will never stumble. This encouragement is strong. When He says you will never stumble, Peter is actually using a double negative. And double negatives are forbidden in English, right? They're seen as bad grammar, but in the Greek it serves to intensify Peter's point as if to say, no, you will never stumble at any time, or you ain't never going to stumble as long as you practice these things. It will not happen. And I think we can look at Scripture and actually see the ultimate reason why. It's because the Lord Himself is at work, right? In Psalm 37 we read this, See, we walk boldly, not recklessly, knowing that God guides our steps. So Psalm 37, 23-24. The steps of a man are established by the Lord, and he delights in his way. When he falls, listen to this, he will not be hurled headlong, because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. <clears throat> Don't we tell people that when we try to encourage them? You know, Hey, come on, step up, I'm not going to hold your hand, right? The Lord's, that's the Lord's duty, right? It's the Lord's responsibility. He holds our hand. He keeps us from being hurled headlong. Listen to Jude, verses 24 through 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. See, he is the one who keeps us from stumbling. We are not able, but he is able. Even in the, the Christian liberty passage, right? The famous one, Romans 14. We read the same thing. And this is, this is the very reason that we, <clears throat> that we regard a sensitive conscience to the weaker brother, right? We do not judge him unjustly. In Romans 14, 13, therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block. Same thing. Not to put a stumbling block, not to put something that will devastate a brother's faith in a brother's way, right? The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is able to judge the one who eats. For God has accepted him, right? God has accepted him and is able to make him stand. So just really quickly, we have there Romans 14, 13, and then the one I just read, Romans 14, 3 through 4. Romans 14, 3 through 4. But the, but the directive is clear. Right? Don't be a stumbling block to your brother. Why? Because God has accepted him and God is able to make him stand. But all of this right, is upheld by God. So the person who walks boldly can do several things here. If you are, able to, if you are empowered in your walk with Christ, you can walk uprightly. That's the first thing. You can walk straight. One of the words for sin, we usually translate it iniquity in the Old Testament, comes from the Hebrew word avon, which means to be crooked or to be literally bent over. Right? Bent over. Maybe some of us are walking that way today because of the feats of strength contest yesterday. Right? Having a hard time walking uprightly. But we now can walk uprightly. Right? We can stand before God in faith. 
We are no longer crooked. We are no longer weighed down, bent over by the burden and guilt of sin because Christ has taken it upon Himself. So we can walk uprightly. We can walk confidently, right? Confident in the work of the Lord. By faith in His continuing work. right? Not arrogantly, but confidently. A person who walks boldly can also walk in the light. That is, we can walk with our deeds exposed. Because hopefully we are, we are doing righteous deeds and we want those deeds to be exposed to demonstrate that they are a working of God. And it also prevents us from walking hypocritically. So we walk in the light. Not with shame, not with anything to hide. Because we want to be a testimony to the work of God. So we also walk wisely, right? We walk circumspectly, thoughtfully, making the most of every opportunity. That's how we walk. We do not walk in such a way unless grace emboldens us to that end. And yet we find that it does, and does so abundantly and sufficiently. So that's the fourth one. So grace empowers me to serve Christ. Grace exhorts me to remember Christ. Grace establishes my calling in Christ. Grace emboldens my walk with Christ. And then finally, grace equips me simply for life with Christ. You could say, what kind of life? Well, kingdom life. This is what we're going to get into. So let's look at verse 11. It says, okay, you will never stumble, for in this way the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be, <clears throat> will be abundantly supplied to you. Okay, so the interpretation that I am going to um, that I am going to offer will no doubt give way to other questions. And I think as as our study continues in the book of First Peter, we will we will uh, uh, answer those questions as uh, comprehensively and as exhaustively as possible. So keep that in mind. We're not going to say everything about this particular text today and, of course, the wider-ranging context. But we must go where Scripture leads. And I think context here is, is king. So this is, a, this is a difficult interpretation, and I'll offer some, but I will, in the end, tell you what I believe Peter is saying here. So, the, main, the key word here really is <clears throat> entrance into the eternal kingdom, right? We know that it is the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We know that it will be abundantly supplied to us. But what is the entrance into the eternal kingdom that Peter has in mind here, right? Entrance simply meaning the act of entering, right? The act of entering. It could be an ongoing act. It could be one, one isolated act. Okay, so this could, mean, this could mean one of three things. Okay, so... So write these down. And bear in mind, the first two are true and common for every believer. So the first is this. It could be entrance into the kingdom at conversion, right? Colossians characterizes this as being transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved Son, right? From the kingdom of darkness. So it's a, a single transaction, a single event. And we can understand, yes, we have, in a very real sense, entered into the kingdom of God. We are, we are living right now kingdom life because Christ is king and his kingdom is a present reality. It's not as if Christ came and said, hey, the kingdom of God is among you right now, and then he ascends to the right hand of the Father and suddenly, whoosh, the kingdom is gone. No, the kingdom didn't go anywhere. And in fact, for the last 2,000 years, the kingdom has gotten much bigger. So let's establish that. Okay, 
So secondly, and I think this is the most popular one and most common one for this particular verse, it is entrance into the kingdom of God at death, or I guess you could wrap that up into it, or at the consummation, right? So death or the consummation. So yes, when we, when we die, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We know that. So yes, in a, in a way, we are with Christ in His kingdom. We understand that as, as, a, as, a, as a common truth in, in the Christian faith. So entrance there or what is thought of as the second coming. Christ returns, consummation of all things. We all then enter into the fully consummated new heaven and new earth. Okay. So I guess that's three. So all of those have pretty good, pretty good defenses, but I think context would suggest that there, is a, that there is a more immediate sense to this. And I would say absolutely, all believers look forward to this, right? We all look forward to the eventual, eventual second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, even though we may not know when that may be. We all look forward, even though none of us wants to, wants to experience death, we, we recognize that to depart from this, from this earthly shell is to be with the Lord Jesus Christ. So in that sense, we look forward to it. Right? We want to be with Jesus. But I think what, what, what he means here, remember, the context here is that Peter's audience is persevering through a lot of scoffing. Right? If you go to uh, quickly to 2 Peter chapter 3, he says, know this first of all, but in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, right? Mockers going to mock, scoffers going to scoff. Following after their own lust and saying, where is the promise of His coming? I would say this, overwhelmingly, His coming is Christ's appearance in judgment over Jerusalem. That is what the saints of the first century were looking for. Jesus taught it, Paul taught it, Peter taught it, James taught it. The New Testament writers taught this. Okay. So they're expecting that. So in what sense is that entrance into His kingdom? So we'll have to glean from Scripture to figure this out. Okay, Again, not everything is going to be exhaustively answered or explained, but hopefully we can, we can wet the theological whistle, as it were, and uh, you know, give you some tools for your own investigation and study. So let's go to the words of Jesus first. In Matthew 16, 28, He tells His disciples, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. So what's that all about? Okay, we, we, we use Scripture to interpret Scripture. Remember, the, God is His own best interpreter. Okay, what is this, what is this kingdom? Well, we would, we would go back down to Daniel chapter 7. Right, Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And it says this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming, and He came up to the Ancient of Days, that is the Father, and was presented before Him. Okay, So we say, well, what does that have to do with a kingdom? Well, you read, down, you read one more verse down, verse 14. And to Him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Okay, so you see, are we tracking here a little bit, going back from New Testament to Old Testament? So in what sense was this kingdom 
brought to bear in the first century, even at the destruction of Jerusalem. Can, the, can we make a case from Scripture that that is what is actually in view here? I would say yes. So listen now to Matthew 26, 64, because Jesus is speaking to his accusers, and he is quoting Daniel. Matthew 26, 64, Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Okay, He is making a statement, something that's going to happen. And he's saying, you will see that. And I would say the most plain reading of this would lead us to conclude that his accusers in person, while they were still alive in the first century, they would witness Jesus coming on the clouds of heaven in fulfillment of Daniel 7 and in fulfillment of Jesus' own words in Matthew 16. Okay, now turn to Matthew 24 really quickly, because this will seal it up for us. In Matthew 24, we read this. Of course, this is talking about signs of Christ's return, the judgment upon Jerusalem. Start at verse 29. But immediately, after, but, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, that is the tribulation period upon Jerusalem, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see, listen to this, they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. So when the Son of Man comes on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory, that is the same thing in view as the coming in His kingdom. So when He judges Jerusalem, His kingdom is coming to bear in a particularly powerful way. And we see that as described in Daniel 7, 13 and 14, that not only is a judgment taking place, but the Father is giving the Son dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve Him. That's why we preach the Gospel now, so that everyone will serve Jesus Christ. His dominion has already been established, and it will not pass away, and it will not be destroyed. That's why we proclaim His name to the nations. But in a very special way, His kingdom was expressed His power, His dominion came to bear when Jerusalem was judged. So I think a very helpful quote here comes from Peter Lightheart. And he's he's talking about in, in verse 16 of 2 Peter 1 where he says, we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right Here we have that coming, the Perugia, this this special arrival that they had foretold, right? So in context, we are looking forward to something that is more immediately on the horizon. So listen to Peter Lightheart. The upshot of this is that the coming of Jesus and the entry into the kingdom of verse 11 describe the same reality. Jesus' Perugia that is coming will be at the same time the coming of the kingdom in its, listen to this, new covenant fullness. And that is the kingdom that Peter wants his readers to enter. Like Noah and Lot, the godly Christians of the first century church will watch the world collapse around them 
and like Noah and Lot, they can be confident God will rescue them from that collapse and will give them entry into a new world on the other side. Thus, the kingdom of our Lord and Savior does not des- describes not the consummation of all things, but the world of the new covenant. And that is the world in which we live in today, is the new covenant world. Remember, the new creation is not instantaneous. It's gradual as the gospel is preached. That's why any who are in Christ are called what? A new creation. Citizens of the new heaven and new earth. So, of course, we say, well, what's our application then if this happened in the first century? Well, we, we have lots of applications because we still live in the new covenant world, right? We still li- are ambassadors of the new creation living in the new creation because we are citizens of the Jerusalem above, the heavenly Jerusalem. And we are bringing that to bear upon this world that is fading away and its lusts as we call them to repent and trust in Christ and to believe in Him and to obey Him. And so where the sacking of Jerusalem comes in is that the sacking of Jerusalem represents the first fruits of the collapse of the old world. Remember, we're promised in 1 Corinthians 15 that Christ will have all His enemies put under His feet. And as we've mentioned before, Jerusalem was the first enemy. So that's how all of this fits together. So as we continue to preach the Gospel, we are continually watching Christ be faithful to His Word and put all enemies under His feet. And so for that, the church rejoices. For that, the church says, Amen. And having believed that, note what he says, entrance into this new covenant order of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Right? We don't, he, he's, he's trying to encourage His people in the first century. Don't be doubting. Don't, don't turn to scoffing and unbelief. Don't compromise the joy that is before you in watching this old order collapse and to see the promises of God come to fruition. Because the dominion of Christ is going to be put on display in a glorious way when He judges His enemies. Don't fail to rejoice in the exercise of Christ's power even in His judgment. Because He's keeping His Word. He's keeping His promises to His people. So don't miss the benefit of that. So in the same way, the church should not forfeit the benefit and joy of watching that continue to happen. And that's why He says in chapter 3, verse 14, Therefore, beloved, right? Since you look for these things, you, first century Christians, look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless, and blameless. says this abundantly, right? Will be abundantly supplied to you. right? Quoting, Heaven will not be the, will not be the plain or fail to stimulate every divine affection for God or fail to live up to our anticipation of it. Right? To say that it is abundant means that it will far exceed anything conjured up by the human imagination. Right? So no matter our interpretation of this passage, the application stands. The kingdom of God, it must be recognized, is one of abundance. To enter it is abundant grace. To experience life in it is to to delight ourselves in that abundance. To enter at death or consummation is to experience the abundant presence of God. So in each case, as believers in Jesus Christ, we are to be a part of that kingdom and to be eager about it and to be excited about it with an excitement that eclipses all other earthly 
pursuits. See, that's why Isaiah 55 says, come delight yourself in abundance, right? We will experience the kingdom in its fullness later, absolutely. But even now, we recognize God's abundant grace offered to every believer who lives in the kingdom of Jesus. I think sometimes we treat God like He's some kind of miser. Yes, I will suffer now. And all I will do is suffer. I'll just walk around with, with my head down. No joy. right? No anticipation. But God says, delight yourself in abundance. Now, in the abundant life and the abundant joy that He gives. Listen to what Matthew Poole says. God will likewise minister or add largely or richly the supplies of the Spirit in grace and strength and consolation and whatsoever is needful for you in the way whereby your faith may be increased, your joy promoted, and your perseverance secured till ye come into the possession of the everlasting kingdom. So even Matthew Poole recognized that this is a present abiding reality for every believer. It's not just instantaneous. It's not just eternal. It's present with His people. And in that way, God equips us, equips us with everything to enjoy abundant life in His kingdom. So that is the call, right? We who are justified freely by grace through faith in Christ are called to enjoy His abundance. Even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of, in the midst of an unbelieving world, we are called to enjoy our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who delivers us from our enemies in the same fashion as He delivered the first century church from theirs. Right? So their reality is our reality. Right? We persevere, understanding that the grace of Christ supplies us with every need. And I certainly hope you believe that this morning. That everything that God gives us is through Christ, but it is by His grace, by His favor, shown to us. That is the grace of Christ shown to the virtuous. Let's pray. Father, thank You again for Your love and faithfulness to us. I pray that we can set our minds on these things to walk confidently. Lord, to walk boldly. To walk trusting in You. Remembering, Lord, that You love us and that we are called to serve You. We want to serve You well. We want to serve You with, with trust and with courage. Lord, to be able to walk uprightly before You, knowing that our good deeds are empowered by You and reflect Your goodness and not our own. Lord, may we set our hearts on eternity, uh, even on the eternal life that You, that you offer us, that You abundantly supply that we live life now in Your kingdom and that we are ambassadors of it. So please help us, Lord, to remember that, to focus on it, to dwell on it, and to rejoice. Lord, You have not, you have not been stingy in Your promises, but have given us exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think. And if there are any in here, Lord, who do not believe that, please refresh their faith. Give them a true faith, Lord, that, that rests in all that Your Son has done so that there will be no doubt as to the grace that He supplies. Help, Lord, this, these truths rest on our hearts today. If I said anything unclear, 
um, or even failed to mention something key, may your spirit uh, remind them of that from your word. We put our full trust in you, Lord. Again, we thank you for even this day that we can commemorate uh, the return of justification by grace through faith, Lord, and the, and the preeminence of gospel preaching. May we be faithful to continue that legacy and see this world transformed and to enjoy abundant life in your kingdom. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.